This podcast is free and it's accessible to everyone thanks to support from listeners like you. If you value this show, please consider supporting its production by donating to our home, KUOW. It only takes a minute to give and you'll be helping to support the production of this podcast. Make a donation at KUOW.org or follow the link in the show notes. And thanks. Welcome to KUOW Speakers Forum. I'm your host, John O'Brien. In this extra episode, Yona Harvey is an American poet and an associate professor at the University of Pittsburgh. She also counts herself among the first black women to write for Marvel Comics. She reads here from her second collection of poetry, You Don't Have to Go to Mars for Love. About it, Poet Maya Marshall wrote, quote, The book begins with desire in an attic and ends with two women haunting all God's rivers after Earth's glaciers melt. Its scale is massive in terms of time and space, yet remains grounded in song, history, and crystalline images. There is only one dominant speaker here, and she has eyes on many scenes— from Charleston, South Carolina, to imagined districts in outer space, unquote. Harvey spoke here as part of the Lyric World series, Conversations with Contemporary Poets, curated by Shinyi Pai and presented by Town Hall Seattle. Pai is the author of 10 books of poetry. Her latest collection is Enso. This event took place on October 5th, 2020. Today our guest is Yona Harvey, and we'll be talking about the topic of renewal and departures and arrivals. Yona Harvey's first book, Hemming the Water, won the Kate Tufts Discovery Award from Claremont Graduate University. She is among the first Black women writers for Marvel Comics and earned an Eisner Award for her contribution to World of Wakanda. She co-authored Black Panther and the Crew with Ta-Nehisi Coates, Yona is a graduate of Howard University and earned her MFA from The Ohio State University and a Master's of Library and Information Science from the University of Pittsburgh, where she is also an associate professor. She is a recipient of the Carol R. Brown Achievement Award from the Heinz Foundation and winner of the inaugural Lucille Clifton Legacy Award in Poetry from St. Mary's College of Maryland. She facilitates creative writing workshops and currently serves on the editorial board of Poetry Daily. Today, we'll be talking to Yona about her new collection, You Don't Have to Go to Mars for Love, which was published in early September from Four Way Books. Please welcome Yona Harvey. I'm Yona Harvey, and thinking about arrivals, departures, renewals has been pretty stimulating while unpacking the process of creating my new poetry collection, You Don't Have to Go to Mars for Love. I grew up in the Midwestern United States, specifically Southern Ohio, where my locales were literally divided from pretty much the time I was born. So before I started kindergarten, my parents, younger sister, and I lived with my mother's eldest sister so my parents could save money and prepare to move into a house they'd bought in a new development in suburban Cincinnati. 
So I have early memories of living with my aunt and going to daycare or babysitters who were also my aunt's friends and neighbors. And then after we moved into our own house, my father would drive my sister and me to his parents' house in the city. And that was the house where he grew up. And that drive took place pretty much every Saturday of our childhood. So without thinking about it much, it it was pretty organic. Um, My sister and I transitioning from place to place. Our suburb was predominantly white, though becoming more populated with black families because of white flight. And our grandparents' house was, of course, in a predominantly black neighborhood in the city where I rarely saw white people, though my father says there, there was more of a mix of working class families when he was younger, when he was a kid. So one other thing is that when school was out during summer vacation, we would spend those days in the summer at my maternal grandparents' public housing apartment on Ezra Charles Drive. And it sounds funny saying public housing because I didn't recognize, because, why is it funny saying that? It's funny saying that because I'm saying it now in hindsight as a descriptor for anyone who's listening to this podcast. But back then it was just my grandparents' place. So my maternal grandmother would watch me and my sister and our cousins while our parents were at work. And that is why or how my cousins became my extended siblings. And that is how I had access to so much language, ideas about style and dress and trends um, from early on. Um, My mother had five sisters and a brother and All the families lived in different neighborhoods in the city or the surrounding area. So there was all this convergency, slang and stories and caffeine and or dozens, as people would say. We didn't say that. We didn't use that word. We said caps in one place in my grandmother's space, in my grandparents' space. And I just remember that being the best space. So um, anyway, going back to Ezra Charles Drive, I have to credit the late poet Michael Harper for teaching me that Ezra Charles was a famous heavyweight champion. As a kid, I just loved the sound of that name, Ezra Charles, Ezra Charles, like that. It was just so strange, just a cool name for a street. Um, But no one ever told me that Ezra Charles was a famous Black boxer or that he was from Cincinnati. And it's just so funny. It's so strange to have learned that many years later as an, as an adult um, in a workshop with Harper. So I bring all that up. I say all that to say that you don't have to go to Mars for love is about revisiting spaces and continuing lost or non-existent conversations, conversations that I wish I'd had, um, picking up on conversations from makers and people who are influential in my life. And so the book essentially begins in my paternal grandparents' attic and then progresses into other fantastical spaces. Lots of 
portals and imagined districts open up and are traversed. So I think that's just, that's enough. That's probably too much (laughs) about how this book begins. So, or how it was made. Um, The first poem I'm going to read is the first poem in the book. And it's called That. I grew up with pickles. I slept in the attic. Cigarettes, sheets, laced with smoke. The heat of my father's brother's old room. Larry Blackman painted for effect and Shaka Khan's lips. More like a kiss, if a kiss could walk when it came to life. If a kiss could have hips and legs and ass, well, I wanted that. And if the colors could sweat and strip me down to my slip, well, I wanted that too. Nobody knew what I was thinking up there, though maybe they wanted that, that. Segregation Continuum. And this poem is written after the activist Ella Baker and visual artist Glenn Ligon. Layered in black, on black, on white canvas, we who believe in freedom cannot rest. Looking at the way we look, looking forward, stepping back by way of upturned neck, by way of three steps back, looking black coded, by way of modes, by way of reconstruction, by way of insurrection, by way of colored fountains, by way of elected Democrats or elected aristocrats. It is obvious we are a presence, though we have been discomforted at school gates, at rental offices, at museum entrances. Even we cannot rest who believe in freedom. We are to some an irritant, an iresome, tiresome lot. We do not subscribe just because something comes out of a leader's mouth, out of the mouth of a tyrant. So we are too difficult. We are much too difficult. We are much too aware. We are much too marked. We are all that matter to us that matter. We are the most comforting presence by way of nod, by way of pound, by way of sup. We are always fashionable when we do not try. We do not try to insult except when we do. But we do not hesitate to speak of the things about which we agree or disagree. We participate at the level of our thinking by way of our thinking, by way of our mass expression. We who believe in freedom cannot rest 
where once hundreds and even thousands of we ordinary people had taken a position that made us very uncomfortable when we decided, for instance, to walk rather than take the bus. So I have, I was going to say I have a background in <laughs> library science, but I don't know that that's true. I studied it in, in graduate school and I spent some time, a very short time working in libraries before I started to teach. And I don't know, there's just this lure of the archives that I think I connect to early, well, really elementary school, like bookmobiles and books and libraries, that connection. And then later as an undergraduate student um, at Howard University, being um, working in the archives there. Uh, so you would meet all of these interesting scholars who would come and go and you would just get all these little snippets of information either because you were preparing the documents, copying the documents, or overhearing some conversations that the researchers were having with the librarians. And, uh, and in a lot of ways, the work, the poems that I've made over the years have been constructed in that way, like through scraps of paper and notes and notebooks and note-taking. Um, so this poem the title is a quotation from a book by Elizabeth Clark Lewis. I worked hard so my girls didn't have to serve nobody else like I did except God. And in this book, Clark Lewis, who was my professor, my history professor, is interviewing a lot of Black women who were domestics in Washington, D.C. And um, it's just the book is just filled with these incredible stories about these women's lives. And I don't know, the funny, embarrassing part is that I will sometimes tell people that I bought the book right away when it came out because I was so excited about it. But I feel like when I was younger, I felt a disconnection. I thought like, oh, what an interesting book. This has nothing to do with my life. And then, you know, you get older and smarter and you're like, wait a minute, this has everything to do with my life and who I am, my entire lineage. So I worked hard so my girls didn't have to serve nobody else like I did except God. Candy colored bulbs frame a girl for a holiday. If the wicked call from the other side, she doesn't hear. Blinds shut. Devices blink and twitter. Before it's too late, her mother snaps a picture. Anticipates angst and oddly angled aches. Strawberry letters. Whatevers. The mother will mark the photo tomorrow. Sign, seal, we're all well. One of the last accept acceptable print messages. Meanwhile, soup for dinner again. What else? It's winter. Herbal constellations swivel in froth, stir, 
She samples with a lean near bowing, steam on closed eyelids. Mothers ought to give thanks. Simeon, she thinks instead. And then her long-gone grandmother's tattered Bible, the daughter's overdue library book concerning states' rights. Why is that? She's hardly felt hated. X's and O's glow in the daughter's palm. Look how easy, the daughter often says. She is patient with her mother. Blessed be the child at the center of snow and flu season. She flew past blessings long ago, so far from a little girl, really. And the next poem is called The Dream District, January. (laughs) It's When I try to describe this book, I'm thinking about like some of the stressors that were in place when the book was being composed. And so part of the rhythm of the book is like things that seem concrete and familiar and then other things that feel or seem fantastical. And I don't know, the best way for me to describe it feels like a way that the mind or the imagination is trying to cope with or reframe, re-see or traverse certain situations like on the ground, everyday situations. And so, I don't know, I think the best way to deal with the book maybe is to just allow some of the strangeness to flow through you as a listener I don't know, just like you would if you heard a trippy song on the radio. The Dream District, January. January, I'm lost inside your industrial gray. My rig at the ready, my truck trucking, its ginormous tires flat ironing the road. Vivica Fox's mantra on the CB radio. Black Mambo, Black Mambo, more white static and fade. No word from the ladies out there. They know and don't know. They say and don't say. Don't say, January. I'm driving past your peculiar highway sign painted Pasadena. January, you know. I'm nowhere near Pennsylvania's no California and getting lost exhausts me. January, I pull the air horn on your fog, pull over at a coffee house that looks like a house I know, but where are the woods, the village and the goddamn snow? All my guilt and shame on the mount of books and poems I ought to know. Now, honey, read this, the Tina Turner lookalike owner says, hands me her copy of an anti-fracking manifesto derived from ancient tea brewing rituals. And by the way, that's all we serve 
no coffee at this coffee house. Our specialty is green, Tina says, grown local by the community. All those T's and E's should put me at ease, but my bearings are lost. Where am I? Pasadena, Pennsylvania? Well, make it black and steep it long, I say. The day is wearing down on me. And I think I sometimes shy away from reading poems. I think that could be perceived as strange, but I'm just going to lean into the next poem, The Frog District. I zipped my wetsuit and flopped from the edge of a queen-sized bed into the deep, which is to say I turned in my sleep and swam to the pond where no one recognized me, away from the faithless and careless, toward the skulls of monks who ground their jawbones and moaned, we're born and we die. We once swam where you swim. Excuse me, had I needed reminding? More amphibian than queen, more mad than Mary, the after anger of frog work treaded inside me. I had netted fish. I had scrubbed algae. I had shaken the speckled remains of food from lava-colored castles. All you had to do was ask, whispered unlifted fingers, bubble talk. But let me not trouble those waters. My story leaps elsewhere, spider-webbed, emerald-eyed, post-weary. I kick my way back top. Bye-bye, froggy bottom. Keep your convenient book of procedural treasures, your lectures above the well springs, your bit of eerie swampland and half-breed mermaids wrecking toy ships. And um, so sometimes people ask me if I collaborate with musicians and visual artists. And sometimes I've been very lucky to do that. I just get, again, thinking about this idea of departure, arrival, and return, um, or renewals. For a short period, when I was finishing this book, I was collaborating with um, an interdisciplinary artist, Alicia Wormsley. And Alicia does a lot of work uh, just incredible work. You can Google her, but um, she talks a lot about Afrofuturism and the way time works. And so um, just working with her had me thinking more and more about this idea of the past, the present, and the future coexisting alongside one another at the same time. And for some reason, that just resonates with me so much in terms of like, I don't know, black women and identity. And again, this idea of 
revisiting conversations that were finished or that were not finished or were interrupted or never got started. I think that's one of the gifts that poetry gives us probably really all art. So anyway, um, dark and lovely after takeoff, a future. Nobody straightens their hair anymore. Space trips and limited air supplies will get you conscious quick. My shea buttered braids glow planetary as I turn unconcerned, unburned by the pre-takeoff bother. Leave it all behind, my mother told me, sweeping the last specks of copper thread from her front porch steps, and just as quick, she turned her back to me. Why had she disappeared so suddenly behind that earthly door? Our people have made progress, but perhaps she'd said once, not enough to guarantee safe voyage to the great beyond, beyond where Jesus walked, rose, and ascended in the biblical tales that survived above sprocket-punctured skylines and desert-dusted runways jeweled with wrenches and sheet metal scraps. She'd no doubt exhale with relief to know ancient practice and belief died hard among the privileged too. Hundreds of missions passed and failed, but here I was strapped in my seat, anticipating what exactly? Curved in prayer or remembrance of a hurt so deep, I couldn't speak. Had that been me, slammed to the ground, cuffed, bulleted with pain as I danced with pain, I couldn't shake loose. Even as the cops aimed pistols at me, my body and mind both disconnected and connected and unable to freeze, though they shouted freeze like actors did on, back, on bad television. They'd watched and thought they recognized me, generic or bland, without my mother weeping like Mary, Ruby, Idella, Geneva, or Esther, stunned with the grief our own countrymen refused to see, to acknowledge or cease initiating, instigating, and even mocking in the social networks. Ignorant phrase bent and twisted like our DNA denied, but thriving and evident nonetheless. You better believe the last things I saw when far off lifted were Africa, 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 Africa. And though it pained me to say it sooner, the unmistakable absence of the Great Barrier Reef. That was um, a really powerful reading. What I think um, felt really clear to me about listening to you is that your writing is at the convergences of so many different rich topics, different geographies, intergenerational voices and experiences, language, 
voice, culture, style, and is this container for um, so much thinking and knowledge. This first question I want to um, ask you is about um, influence and conversation, because a lot of uh, what you talked about was the desire to engage in non-existent conversations or conversations that never happened. So, you know, this book, You Don't Have to Go to Mars for Love, is filled with poems inspired by artists and cultural icons and activists from the Black community. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk more about some of these makers and thinkers that you are in conversation with and the ways in which um, your own writing uh, may continue or depart from some of the ideas that they're exploring whether that's uh, Ella Baker, Glenn Ligon, or others. Yeah, I think I, it's, it's important to say, you know, as a person who grew up in the Midwest and in suburban and urban spaces, that traveling to D.C. to go to school and then being under the little house of protection of Howard University was deeply influential for me. I, it's probably not the same for someone, and I've heard people say this, if you're like from New York or some place where there's a lot of diversity and ethnicities, like, you know, a lot of culture happening in one spot. But for me to go there when I was 18 years old was just a mind-blowing experience. So to answer the question, um, I took a black in the a blacks in the arts class early on at Howard, and that exposed me to Jacob Lawrence and the Phillips Collection. And I met the poet Douglas Kearney at Howard. I learned about Lucille Clifton at Howard. Lucille Clifton also went to Howard, and Mary Baraka used to visit Howard. So all the time, these conversations that were ongoing before I even got there were entering my space. Like, so I feel very lucky to, I don't know, to have been able to attach myself to these people. And so I don't know, that's where, that's how that influence happens. That's how, to me, my poetics is kind of born or evolves, develops. It's, it's almost the idea of like an intergenerational community and lineage that you're yeah. in conversation with aesthetically. Um, I love that you talked a little bit about your love for libraries and archives. Uh, for me as a young person, they were really incredible, like incredibly important for me growing up in like a really small town. Um, and, you know, um, hearing you talk about the work that you did while you worked in libraries uh, and assisted researchers, I'm curious if there is a role that research plays in your work, for instance, um, ethnography, um, the, the interviews that you spoke of that your teacher was doing in that uh, particular uh, collection of interviews, um, if that kind of research-based approach is a part of how you approach your writing. Absolutely. So when I, the research is kind of the work that happens between the poems because it's almost like, you know, you, you're using a different part of the brain. <laughs> and so the research is a, it's a digging, fact-finding, creative journey, you know. Um, it's also, it can be a stalling tactic too, you know, um, when you don't have the time or it feels like you don't have the time and space to make things, then you always feel like validated or less guilty about 
looking things up, you know, going into the database, going into the archive, listening to Ella Baker's oral histories, which I did, you know, so yeah, absolutely. And I love when those bits of information feed into the poem. It's almost like less lonely. It's as if you're not writing the poem by yourself. And that really is how I think about poetry. It's not me, the great poet (laughs) writing original things. It's me, the child of all of these amazing people trying to extend their work, or at least that's the ambition. So, yeah. That's a really beautiful way to describe it. Um, There's a poem that you shared that was inspired by Elizabeth Clark Lewis in which you write about mothers. Um, Specifically, there was a line, mothers ought to give thanks. Um, In some of your other poems, um, there's a piece in which the reader will encounter a child who must be patient with her mother. Um, Hearing a little bit about how you were raised by your grandmother in a very sort of matriarchal structure, Um, I'm wondering if you have any thoughts that you'd like to share about how you see the maternal being valued or misvalued, if there is a debt or recognition that you feel maybe owed to mothers and maternal ancestors. Yeah, I feel like the maternal is valued, again, just from this perspective, I'm sure others may feel differently, but as something that's complicated and family or site specific and fluid, but also (laughs) deeply influential. And so, I mean, everybody has an opinion about their mother, what, you know, one way or another. Right. So, um, I feel like the maternal is sometimes misvalued through preciousness mythology, of course, sexism, and these assumed roles that are attached to it. And then I also think there can be an element of guilt that's attached to the maternal, specifically if you become a mother. So I think there's a fear that I'm always wrestling with that, (laughs) or was, I don't, not so much now, but that I was mothering incorrectly. And I think that's where the word ought comes from like mothers ought to give thanks and when I was reading that poem I and and back when I wrote it it was like whose voice is that I don't think it's my voice but it's a voice that's alive nonetheless right you know who is that who's putting that pressure on the maternal right and so I don't know and then there's also four generations maybe five generations of mothers in that poem right and so I think it's interested in like the messages that mothers and daughters send and receive over time so I'd love to stay with this topic of mothering because I think it can be very powerful and impactful on a creative practice and I know that you're both a mother to a daughter and a mother to a son. Um, We write a lot about maternal experience and um, centering acts of motherhood. And, um, you know, one thing that I think about, and I'm sure that you do too, you know, as as mothers of of boys, of sons, you know, um, those boys will leave us. You have a line in one of your poems, every son leaves us at once. I'm curious uh, if there are departures and arrivals that you're seeking to remember or commemorate in your work around motherhood. Mm. 
Ooh, that's such a great question. Um, <laughs> I think it's, I feel like a broken record, but so I apologize, but I think I just, I want to remember the many cross-generational conversations that are taken for granted. And also I just always have this image for some reason, I'm a horrible photographer, but the recurring image in my family photos is always people walking away from me. I just love that image, even though it's painful sometimes. So I think I'm commemorating that, like the, the fluidity of it, you know? So all my, so many pictures of my son are like him going off the skateboard, him stumbling away or walking away, you know? And so I don't know, you just want to like capture that and hold on to that somehow, you know, partially. That's a partial answer. <laughs> sure. So shifting gears a little bit, um, in the book, there are a lot of feminine, feminine elements in the narratives. And I'd love to um, turn to thinking a little bit about how the male gender is represented in the collection. Um, can you talk a little bit about what is man face? <laughs> For me, man face is a little bit of a play on blackface. It's, it's a bit of a stretch, but just me wrestling with this idea of women I've encountered who I feel are, they are trying to show strength by imitating what they see men doing. And I always find that odd sometimes because some of those behaviors are so oppressive and condescending and hurtful toward women. So I, I know it's in that poem where that term comes up, that was flashing through my mind, you know, and I had a specific relative in mind. I think I actually say that in the poem, a relative by marriage who, you know, there was just certain phrases she would use, like you have to meet certain conditions and it just sounded awkward on the tongue and you know what I mean? But I think in her eyes, it was her being powerful and, you know, not vulnerable and not dainty, unladylike in a in a good in a good way. So I don't know. Also, I don't know if you know the book "Female Chauvinist Pigs" that Ariel Levy wrote. That is a really fascinating book, and it touches on that idea. Also, you know, the contradictions and like behaviors that sort of are masked as empowerment or viewed as empowering, but really are not. So. Yeah. This uh, performance of masculinity. Yeah. 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 Well, um, you know, femininity is really interesting in this collection to me. Like there are a lot of um, articles of femininity that seem to be scattered throughout the book. In, in an earlier book, your first book, Hemming the Water, you had girdles and scarves and high-heeled shoes, dresses and jewelry. And in this book, there are like jeans and boots and skirts and headdresses and a lot of fashion and style. Um, I'm wondering if you can talk about um, this sort of uh, recurring theme in your work and what the significance of fashion and style are to you. It's funny because um, I think it was it's a little, I don't know, not completely on the surface for me. So when you ask that question, I kind of trace it back 
think to my own mother, who was a great seamstress. And that's how she and her sisters would, when they were growing up, when they were teenagers, they would sew their clothes. This is back when it was actually more affordable to do that than to buy the clothes. It's not that way anymore. But even, you know, these are women who didn't grow up with a lot of money, but knew all the terms for these pieces that, you know, certain kinds of pleats and the way fabrics hang and the way furniture is uh, refurbished, just all these different things. So I think that language just stayed with me or that interest, that visual after all these years. Yeah. So I don't think it's a totally conscious thing on my part. I have to pause for a minute, like, oh, okay. Yeah, that is recurring in my work. <laughs> it doesn't seem casual. And um, it's interesting to hear you talk about, um, yes, how, how um, uh, sewing and uh, that kind of work uh, was a part of, um, you know, uh, the women in your life and how that uh, can be elevated to a fine art or craft as well. When we, when we think about that practice as a very creative practice. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. I think we hear a lot about, you know, quilting. I think there was a period in history where that was written about a lot, you know, so yeah, it's a similar, similar thing. So we're going to wind down here soon, but I know that many of um, our listeners may be familiar with your work as one of the first black female writers for Marvel Comics. Along with the author Roxane Gay, you write for their World of Wakanda series, which is a spinoff of Black Panther. I'd just love to hear about some of the ways in which writing poetry may be similar or different than storytelling in comics and how that work has impacted or influenced your work as a poet now. I think one of the biggest similarities and most dynamic or exciting, at least from this nerdy point of view, is the turn of the line, enjambment and line breaks, and the transition of panels in a comic. So it's that surprise, you know, when you are at the bottom of a page of a comic and then you flip it and then boom, there's some surprise in that next panel. I love that. To me, that's very comparable to what happens when you break a line in a poem. I think that's why I'll always, I don't know, be infatuated with line breaks. I didn't, you know, I've experimented a little with prose poems, but I don't think I'll ever be a true <laughs> convert because I love that, the magical part of that. On the other hand, poetry is so, whew, interior and isolating and dare I say lonely at times. Whereas I feel like writing comics to me is much more communal in a way, like in the way that they're made. Like you're always thinking, especially if you are the writer and not the artist, you know, oh, am I being clear in the way I'm communicating how I want, how this might be drawn? You know, there's this great back and forth that happens between the writer and the illustrator and the inker and the penciler and the editor that just does not happen in poetry, you know? So I love that. Fantastic. Um, so the last question that I always ask every guest on the show is um, how do you see the role of poetry and the poet in society? What do those things mean to you? I think I see poems as sacred and having this insight, you know, they invite us to 
pause to slow down. I think they're the anti-Twitter, the anti-social media. And that doesn't mean that I'm a hater around social media, but it's to me, it's like the reverse. It's like slow cooking, slow eating. So, <laughs> you know, and I, I'm, all, I'm ever grateful for the slowing down that gift that poetry gives us. It's not to be read in a hurry, you know, and I like to think that we're different after we read a poem. Well, thank you so much for sharing your work with us today, Yuna. Thank you. Thank you for, thank you for all the great questions. Thanks for having me. Lyric World is a sponsored project of Shunpike and supported by grants from the Satterberg Foundation, Windrose Fund, and the City of Seattle's Office of Arts and Culture, as well as independent donors. Town Hall Seattle presented this episode of Lyric World, featuring Yona Harvey reading from her work and in conversation with Shinyi Pai. To find this event and other great Seattle area talks, go to our website, KUOW.org slash speakers. While you're there, subscribe to our podcast and share your comments. Thank you for listening. Tune in again soon.